Welcome to Into Security, Info Security Magazine's podcast. Hello and welcome to this latest edition of the Into Security podcast, the podcast from Info Security Magazine. I'm Dan Rayward. And Michael Hill here as well, editor. Delighted you could join us for our uh, latest episode in our podcast series. Yeah, this is episode number 14. And um, well, if you joined us on our last podcast, which came out, um, I think it was the start of this month, actually, then, uh, well, it won't surprise you to know what, what topics are still continuing to dominate the uh, the news headlines here at Info Security, and I think quite widely across the uh, tech press and across, across the wider world. Um, and we're going to sort of focus first on a few stories we've seen, um, some related to the COVID-19 pandemic and some, uh, some not. Um, the first story that we're going to pick up is... Well, it's about spam that's related to COVID-19. We've seen quite a lot of reports come into our inboxes and we've published a few things around the, num- the amount of spam that's actually going on in, uh, you know, in terms of using COVID-19 and the coronavirus as a as sort of a means of actually as, as a subject matter. Um, we've got this piece of research from IBM's um, X-Force, their threat intelligence group, which claimed that since February, spam exploiting the, the coronavirus has jumped by 4,300%, so 4,300% and 14,000% over a period of 14 days. So this, this came into our inboxes, uh, I think this week, actually, as we record on the 29th of April. And... Um, it's quite an interesting one that that actually has that that's the jump in traffic. We can compare that to a story that we ran at the very start of April, where we covered uh, Akamai's Edge conference, which is of course one of many conferences now that are being pushed to an online and virtual conference. And they said their CEO opened it saying that they'd seen traffic, a global traffic grown by 30% in March, where a normal growth would be 3%. So, you know, 27% more. Through, uh, those of you better at maths than me will know the, uh, the level of increase there. Um, also, 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 a couple of other ones um, that have sort of cited the uh, the increase in spam. One is Kaspersky. They said they'd observed the number of fake sites and emails, supposedly from delivery services, now exploiting the coronavirus topic. They, of course, said that fraudsters are using tried and true ploys and new schemes. In particular, spammers simply insert a mention of COVID-19 into their usual, usual mailing templates. Uh, but some focus specifically on quarantines and the rapid spread of the pandemic. Now, Kaspersky's um, research there, they said that actually a lot of the um, spam and the phishing they're seeing is pretty standard using things like delivery companies, um, tax refund, things like that. But all they're doing now is dropping that keyword in of COVID or Corona and to help it spread. Um, Kaspersky cited one example where the government had banned the import of any goods into the country. So the package was returned to the sender. Of course, the sender then is encouraged to look at the email that, um, you know, that had been sent to them claiming to, of course, been this delivered package that they missed. You know, we're all, a lot of us working from home at the moment. I'm sure we're all enjoying the delivery uh, delivery process that we're all sort of seeing a lot more of. Um, but of course, that is one way of spreading uh, a you know, emails, malicious emails, phishing, etc. Now, you might sort of think, well, you know, surely because of this, there's lots and lots more spam. Well, not according to SecureWorks. Um, we published an interview last Friday, so that would be the um, 30th, that'd be the 23rd, get my desk right, my maths right, that'd be the 23rd of April. Uh, we ran an interview with Mike McLean, who's a senior security researcher at SecureWorks, where they said they had not seen an increase in the number of um, phishing and spam emails at all. In fact, it was actually exactly the same 
but everyone's pivoting to use COVID-19 and the coronavirus as the subject matter. Um, McLean, uh, McClellan, excuse me, he said, we're seeing more reporting about domains and all of that, but based on our research, we are not seeing a high-end threat. What we are seeing is the threat actors have all pivoted to use COVID-19 as a social engineering ruse and getting people to click on attachments or give up credentials. So very much the same sort of method of phishing that we're used to seeing, but everyone's starting to use the same um, the same trend there. And I suppose with no sport, Michael, <laughs> people haven't got an option to use football or, well, where are we? We'll be right in the middle of the football season or coming towards the end of the football season. Um, people have got to find something that people are going to click on. It's not obviously something we encourage, but it's something that yeah. happens. No, exactly. It's an interesting one. Obviously, we hear a lot of reports about, you know, the the, the huge numbers of COVID related threats being detected. Um, but it's uh, an interesting kind of part of it in my mind is that it doesn't necessarily suggest there's been this huge upsurge in, in cybercrime numbers as if all of a sudden these cyber criminals who who weren't taking part in cyber cybercrime activity before the pandemic have all of a sudden jumped on, jumped on the cybercrime bandwagon. It just seems to me from what I understand that, yeah, there's just been a real mass focus of, of people, of cyber criminals. Um, exploiting COVID as their main topic because it's the only topic at the moment that everyone's talking about. Like you say, there's no sport, there's no, you know, there's no um, big, uh, big events, big shows for people to kind of uh, to focus on. So I guess that kind of explains it, but certainly interesting findings. We're getting kind of by the day really relating to, to COVID related uh, threats. Um, a story from me, this isn't COVID related, and this is a story that was originally uh, covered by uh, Sky News, and we actually covered it on, on InfoSecurity this week as well. Uh, now, this relates to a leading UK university that's come under fire after reportedly failing to notify uh, those affected after hackers breached its network last year. Now, the university in question is Warwick University, uh, and apparently they, they suffered an attack when an employee unwittingly uh, installed malware onto the university's network. Um, a portal, uh, that reportedly allowed hackers to live personal information on students, staff and volunteers taking part in uh, research studies. Now, the interesting thing about this is that um, the impact of the incident was uh, was compounded because data protection at the university was so poor that the institution couldn't identify which information had been stolen. Now, that's a, according to, to Sky News. Um, Registrar and Executive Lead for Data Protection, Rachel Sandbury-Thomas, apparently took the decision not to inform those whose data was stored on the admin network about the incident. Uh, it's unclear at the moment whether the regulator, the ICO, was told. Uh, obviously, there's the implication there of whether the incident would would fall under the remit of GDPR. It probably would. Um, uh, however, a, uh, volunteer, a, a, a voluntary audit at the uni um, by the ICO, which was published last month, revealed multiple failings in processes and procedures in governance and accountability, uh, security of personal data and training and awareness. Uh, the, the latter, so training and awareness category was described as, as having very limited assurance rating. Um, an interesting one. I mean, obviously, it's uh, it's it's the old issue where, you know, it's another breach, um, not particularly surprising. I think the surprising elements of, of this story, which is what uh, Jake Jake Moore actually commented on uh, from, from ESET over there, obviously a great commentator on things that go on in the industry, um, but any sort of cover-up of, of breach incidents is likely to do more harm than good. Uh, it's, it's far better to own up to attacks, especially given that constant attacks against organisations from cyber criminals across the world mean breaches will, uh, will happen. 
Um, he added more people are more forgiving now and tend to appreciate when organisations own up at the earliest opportunity and even show where they have been failing. So the interesting thing about the story is just that uh, the university took the decision not to inform um, the, the members on the database um, of the of the incident. Obviously, there's questions about whether they had the means to identify who has been directly uh, affected. Obviously, that, I guess that's one part of the story. But I guess because of that, they chose not to inform anyone. Um, seems almost more more damning than the than, than the actual uh, breach itself, Dan. Yeah, I agree. I think it, it, it's it's obviously never a particularly good idea to try and cover it up because that leads to, you know, uh, under GDPR now you have to disclose it. Obviously, that's not always the, the easiest thing to do. But um, like you said, you know, you, you cover it up, things don't really work out. And, um, you know, I certainly agree with what Jake said about this, because if... Um, you know, so just to said it again. You know, the uh, yeah, the ICO can come hand. Also, confidence factor. You know, if, if you if you're sort of seen to have covered something up, then the uh, confidence you've had within the sort of the academic community will probably slip. And also amongst you know your local community, you know, the students obviously, you know, past and present. So um, yeah, it doesn't look good on anyone. Right. Well, let's do to our third story then. And it's a couple of research reports that actually have come out the week um, as we record this week. Um, again, more COVID-19, but um, hey, that's the big trend at the moment, as we said with the, the fishers and the spammers. Um, so the first report we got was from IST Squared, and they did a survey of 256 of their cybersecurity professionals, um, where they actually talked about how this had impacted their work. Um, now, they found that 90% of those 256, um, so just over 200, I guess, we're now working remotely full time. I guess probably not a huge surprise. Most people probably listening to this are. However, 81% said that their job function has changed during the pandemic. Um, they conducted the survey this month or so during April uh, 2020, and they found that 96% of respondents organisations had closed their physical work environments and moved them to work remotely. Um, however, um, 23% said the incidents um, had increased as a result of working uh, the current work situation, and some were tracking as many as double the number of incidents. So number of people actually seeing incidents have, has, obviously has gone up, and also they are sort of seeing more and more issues. Now, whether this is related to remote working, obviously we really hope that's not the case. You know, it may just be that uh, you know, things, you know, wider attack surfaces we've been talking about in some of the editorials we've done. Um, however, what's been quite concerning actually is that 47%, so just under half, so I guess about 120 or so, said they have been taken off some or all of their typical security duties to assist with other IT-related tasks, such as equipping a mobile workforce. Um, they had quoted a number of, uh, of respondents who, um, unsurprisingly, chose to remain anonymous, and one said that COVID-19 hit us with all the necessary ingredients to fuel cybercrime. Uh, this included, obviously, staff working from home uh, before organization was set up to enable them to do that um a sort of panic and desire on the on the uh, side of staff to know more hence like i mentioned earlier on with the first story about you know the the phishing tactics are now probably being just as successful as most things are because if they offer a, a lure in saying here's the latest announcement from your organization here's an announcement from the government or from the world health organization then you uh, you obviously attempt to click those things and also attempted a temptation to visit unverified websites in search of up to the minute information we're all um you know trying to find out when we're going get, to get, get, go out of our houses again let alone go back to pubs restaurants in the workplace but um yeah we're all looking for that kind of information now also uh coming out this week was some research from so 
solar winds. Um, this is also quite related um, to the ISC squared um, survey because they found that budgets are being spent more on security and compliance at the moment and less on what they call emerging technologies. Now, these were defined things like artificial intelligence, edge computing, and more is being spent on security. According to uh, the SolarWinds uh, survey, 57% of those respondents to their survey said that security and compliance accounts for a majority there of staffing needs. And actually, there is a great responsibility on tech professionals to ensure overall uptime, availability and performance. So actually, security was being a great driver, actually, for businesses. Now, their, their survey took place at the end of 2019. They said it took place in December. But with statistics in mind that actually, uh, you know, Things aren't maybe that great, according to ISC squared, but actually, according to SolarWinds, things are getting better. It's a bit of a combination where there's you know, people are, are being taken off security. But my, I wonder, Michael, I wonder if people are sort of thinking that we've done the work once we've equipped people with the remote work and we kind of leave them to it. I think that's an interesting one, um, kind of moving off security to focus on, yeah, equipping the remote uh, workforce. I guess that's helping them get set up with, you know, the basic technology side of things. Um, but yeah, then what is this an interesting finding? I think obviously, the, you know, in a way, a lot of people's roles are, are changing um, across the board, really, with the kind of, you know, the, the remote working uh, norms at the moment. Um, but I think they, they were quite surprising numbers that it was quite that much. And um, yeah, it does kind of make you wonder, well, what's what's the long term plan going to be there um, if, you know, if remote working carries on the way it is? I guess companies are going to have to make a decision about their long-term plan in terms of what they do with their security teams and exactly how they deploy them. Um, but yeah, I, I was surprised by by the numbers that um, IC Squared actually um, actually uh, discovered in that research. Mm. Um, so uh, uh, another story from me then, and this one actually uh, was announced today. We covered it today in Infosecurity Security Magazine, um, and this one is relating to Twitter. Now, Twitter has announced that it's going to switch off its SMS-based service in most countries for security reasons, and that marks an end of an era for the social network. Now, um, at, when it was first launched, well, years ago, the service was um, built around SMS with users texting their tweaks, hence there was always that 140 character uh, limit issue. Things obviously moved on with smartphones um, and, and account holders switched to more uh, user-friendly apps. In an update this week, uh, Twitter said that we want to continue to help to keep your account safe. We've seen vulnerabilities with SMS, so we've turned off our Twitter via SMS service, except for a few countries. It's not been made clear exactly what the uh, vulnerabilities are, although obviously Twitter previously did um, switch off the ability to, to, to tweet via text after hackers hijacked the account of co-founder and CEO Jack Dorsey. Um, on that occasion, uh, some, some forces managed to get hold of his phone number via a classic SIM swap attack and use the feature to send out tweets in his name. Now, Twitter has stated that it's not turning off SMS for two-factor authentication, um, although text-based authentication codes have been abused multiple times in, in the past, obviously by sec, um, SIM, SIM swap attackers as well. Um, uh, Twitter went on to say that everyone will still have access to important SMS messages needed to log in to and manage their accounts. Um, so it's just an interesting one that I thought, obviously, it's a, 
one of the one of those interesting things with Twitter has always been about the 140 character limit. Interesting that that was all kind of built around the fact that the, the actual service itself was very much focused on um, SMS. Um, shame they haven't gone, you know, clearly to define exactly what those uh, security vulnerabilities are. But uh, you know, I guess they're, they're, they're quite plain to see. Obviously, SMS is kind of an old. Um, an old form of communicating, I guess an older technology, and I guess Twitter are just trying to sort of um, keep up with the times, I guess. Yeah, I think like you said there, they, they were able to attack via um, Jack Dorsey's um, uh, account, weren't they? And uh, also, mm. I think we, we've heard more and more about SIM swapping, haven't we? Where, um, yeah, I, I, I need to read up on this, but yeah, well, the idea you can obviously, you can adopt someone's uh, phone number or something like that. So maybe there's a, this is another way of presuming, uh, preventing that. Yeah. I think this is I think this is because of what occurred with obviously with with Jack Dorsey there. Yeah, it does appear that using the the SM based system, which you can use to to kind of tweet via text, it does seem that all you need to get hold of is um, somebody's yeah phone number, and I guess in essence you can send out tweets in in somebody else's name. So I guess that's the crux of the reason why they've um, made the announcement this week to 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 kind of end that and and shut it down. Yeah, I guess people just want to make sure they're, uh, or that you know they're, they're protecting their um, their higher value users, shall we say? People obviously want to keep using Twitter. People get looking at it, and that helps their, that helps their advertising. So it's all uh, it's all positive for. Uh, well, I think it's it's a good step forward as well. So let's just look at some of a couple of other stories then, which um, well you know in these sort of more challenging times give us a bit more of a, a bit more of a laugh anyway. Um, one we reported on an Info Security magazine yesterday actually as we write. Um, this was a story where. A U.S. attorney called Elizabeth Trefonis, I think I pronounced that right, um, advised her clients who do not have a smartphone or mobile device, so they're not using Twitter, um, to borrow one from her, from, from a friend or a neighbour, and use free Wi-Fi to log on to virtual court hearings. Um, now we we use the term obviously McDonald's; they're one provider of um, public Wi-Fi, as of course are public libraries and uh, lots of other places where you can get free Wi-Fi. But of course, at the moment we're on lockdown; we're um, encouraged to not leave the house and if you don't have a uh, wi-fi at home you're kind of uh, left to work on your own mobile network and if you don't work somewhere with great mobile service you're a little bit a uh, little bit locked down excuse the pun so actually she's advising um clients this is in um she's a, she's based in jackson wyoming uh, of course you yeah, know sort of quite a rural state so maybe there is um, you know not so great uh, broadband there um she said, advised clients who'd experienced difficulties accessing hearings, um, hearing, excuse me, that have been held online, of course, since lockdown measures were introduced. This was back in uh, about a month ago. Um, she'd advised folks to, con- to connect via free Wi-Fi offered by public libraries and also McDonald's and to try and keep up with to date with things that way, of course, because they've been doing all of their work uh, remotely, the, the lawyers. And she said often she's just sitting in a kind of a pajamas or, a, you know, casual clothing to um, to do all the work rather of course, having to go to an office every day. Now, this does, of course, bring up the uh, concern about public Wi-Fi. Uh, we've seen many stories over the years, some really great research um, about the security of public Wi-Fi. Um, this was by Kaspersky from a couple of years ago, which found that public Wi-Fi networks pose uh, many security risks to users. Uh, in a survey that they did, they found 70% of tablet owners and th- 53% of smartphone or mobile phoners would use public Wi-Fi hotspots. Um, now, of course, the issue here is that public Wi-Fi can be easily intercepted. Um, you don't quite know where the you know the data is going to, so you have to be considerate of that kind of uh, of angle there. Um, of course, you know someone could actually you know 
push you to download something which you know could quite easily be done alternatively you know you don't know who owns that public wi-fi that you're trying to connect to if it gives up all of your personal data via that you know you encourage to sign up of course with your email address to um to connect to a public Wi-Fi, then that's a concern. You might lose that. And of course, you know, financially, a lot of people actually have their, their credit cards now um, through like Google Play um, connected to their phones now. Of course, now I'm sure that's all very secure. But at the same time, you know, once you've connected to someone's hotspot, then you're pretty much sort of submission to their what whatever they want to collect from you. Um, so the other consideration, of course, is check the terms and conditions of what the public Wi-Fi is actually demanding. There was some great research from many years ago from uh, F-Secure, I remember doing it, and they they managed to get put some terms and conditions in to give up the your uh, ownership of your firstborn child to accept their Wi-Fi. Um, yeah, it was it's worth finding it. I know they did it with um, the Pentester Steve Lord. So go, go and find that. It's a really, really great piece of research. But it's it's the concern that we're being encouraged now to try and find um, ways to, to do these things. And, in, you know, in the case of, of their Jackson, Wyoming, people are encouraged to go to McDonald's, which in some cases might be the best spot for a, a Wi-Fi hotspot. And I'm, you know, having used McDonald's Wi-Fi and I've found it to be very, very workable, although I'm not usually in McDonald's that long to actually um, to get good service out of it. But um Public Wi-Fi, Mike. I mean, I'm going to ask you if you use it. I'm sure we all have, but it, it, it's it's a bit of a concern. Just if it's just watching streaming something, it's probably mm. okay. But you've got to consider how what else you're sending over that. Exactly. I think that's you know the like you say. Everywhere you go now, there's a you know a public Wi-Fi access and point. I, th- I guess you know that the stringent advice will be, well, don't use it at all. But obviously, then if you are going to use it, strongly consider exactly what you're using it for. I think that's exactly right. Like you say. Um, streaming something over a certain uh, service, depending on you know what details you've got, I guess linked into that service. Um, but I don't think people are going to stop using public Wi-Fi anytime soon. Um, I'm surprised that such a kind of public figure has made that uh, suggested people to do that. But um, sometimes you you seem to be amazed with some of the things that you do sort of hear being um, being being said. Um, Another story that, that caught my eye, and um, again, a bit of an unusual one, but important nonetheless, uh, it was a warning that uh, Kaspersky has given out to uh, to music fans, music lovers. Um, now, they've revealed uh, research that cyber criminals are using the tracks of some of the world's top DJs to hide malicious files containing a range of threats. Um, obviously, particularly at the moment, a lot of people are at home listening to, to music um, on lockdown, probably more than they would have done. And obviously, you've got um, the, the issue where, you know, you've got a lot of uh, physical shows being cancelled and you've got a lot of artists and musical acts kind of turning to digital um, methods to to let fans kind of experience, you know, live shows through things like Facebook Live, YouTube, Twitch, things like that. Um Kaspersky have warned um, people to be careful. Um, so they've uh, they, they've outlined the extent to which malicious files are being spread via downloads, and the files include adware and malicious trojans, which have the potential to destroy, block, modify, or copy data, or to disrupt the performance of computers and networks. Now, the artist's names found to be most commonly used for these nefarious purposes were David Greta, uh, Alan Walker, DJ Snake, Calvin Harris, and Martin Garrick. So some very well uh, well-known names and popular DJ so it's something to be to be uh, to be wary of and Anton Ivanov uh, 
who's a uh, security analyst over at Kaspersky, said people have started to spend more, t- more time at home and therefore consume more content while listening to streaming or online services. Does not harm electronic music fans. They should be cautious if, if they want to download their favourite songs to their devices. As our research shows, malware can often be hidden behind such files. So people need to take additional measures to safeguard themselves from possible threats. So... It is very much in looking at the kind of the download uh, of of music files, and seems to be that fraudsters have kind of taken to yeah hiding uh, malicious files um, within uh, within music files and using the names of uh, yeah top DJs like you said. Yeah, yeah, some some yeah, even name kind of names I recognise in there. So um, yeah, it's um, yeah. I- like, like we said, you know, go back to all the way to the start with the phishing and the kind of the any way to sort of utilize the current trend is actually a way of getting ahead on things. But um, yeah, it, it, in a way, you can sort of go, well, at least they're trying to be sort of original, but at the same time, you know, we don't obviously encourage that. It's, it's a shame these things happen. Okay, well, we've just got maybe a couple of minutes left to just round up with uh, some of the things that are keeping us busy here at InfoSec and the, uh, the content that we've been working on and some of the content that you can access through our website. Um, start off with just a reminder that our online summit, which was oh, pretty much a month ago today, we actually recorded, is still available uh, on demand on our website. So on demand, you've got 14 individual sessions there covering a wide range of, of topics. Um, there's panel discussions, uh, you've got um, one-on-one interviews, and you've got uh, point-counterpoints uh, sessions as well. Um, so obviously, you know, if you are locked down and you've now been put off downloading music, well, hey, check out uh, some of our sessions that are on demand from the online summit. Uh, it's really great content there, ransomware, phishing. Uh, we're looking at kind of dealing with stress and burnout in the industry, uh, the evolution of fraud. Uh, so make sure you do check that out. Again, that's on our website. That's the Info Security Magazine online summit. Yeah, and speaking about being on lockdown and having some spare time, don't forget we've got tons of webinars still. Um, there's some new ones coming up as we speak. Um, literally, as of uh, tomorrow, we're doing a brand new one around the uh, the concept of SIEM, S-I-E-M. Um, we've also got loads of other webinars we've just put up, actually, um, all the way into August, actually. But um, there's there's an, obviously a whole catalogue of, of webinars going back several years, so plenty to keep you uh, entertained. Um, also, just a reminder that um, we have been shortlisted for five uh, European Security Blogger Awards. Um, I won't try and remember what they all are, but certainly two of them are for this podcast and best new podcast and best overall cybersecurity podcast. So thanks to everybody who did vote for us. However, we do need you to vote again because that was just to get us into the shortlist. Now you need to go in. I think we got until May the 11th, so a couple of weeks to go out and, um, yeah, you know, there's, there's some great podcasts out there. You know, we can't influence you too much, but... Um, Every other podcast is saying vote for us. So why don't we anyway? If you want to go and vote for us and you think we're worth it, then we'd really appreciate that because it's uh yeah, it's gonna be interesting when they announce the results. I think the second of June they're gonna do that virtually. Mm. Yeah, great. And one last point from me. Um well, hard work down on the Q2 print issue uh, finally paid off at the end of last week so that's all now signed off and being printed as we speak so for subscribers to the actual physical uh, print magazine you can expect to uh, receive those probably uh, early mid early to mid next week um, and obviously if you don't uh, subscribe to the physical copy of the magazine around about the week after the digital version will go online as well uh, so again that's the Q2 print issue of Info Security Magazine. We've got uh, a lot of great topics where we're exploring that. Obviously, COVID um, is essential and um, explored a few times, but we've got some other uh, really great features in there looking at the impact of um, cybercrime on um, 
criminal investigations. Uh, we're looking at cyber threats impacting airports. Um, and we've got, Dan, your top 10 on the top 10 most, uh, well, must-read cybersecurity books. Yeah, that was that was quite fun to put together. We put we did a um, a, a tweet. Oh, it must have been about uh, March time, just about asking what people thought were the most essential reads. And we took some um, some information from a couple of um, uh, publishers. Well, no starch press and Perlogo. So we brought something together. And of course, yeah, I'm very much expecting when that does go online to get lots of kickback of why didn't you include this? So uh, maybe in 12 months' time we'll do the second you know second lot of this. We'll see. But uh, yeah, yeah, it, it's uh, well, I hope you'll enjoy that when it comes out. Digital edition will be available for those of you who don't get the print issue um so i think with that michael i think we'll, we'll bring this to an end um thanks to all, all of you for listening and um well keep on touch with us we're at info security mag on twitter and um yeah any questions do any questions you've got and we'll guess we'll see you next time welcome to into security info security magazine's podcast